Well, we've had a rich full morning uh, this morning, and so let's all pray together that the preacher doesn't come along and mess everything up uh, today. Take your Bible and <clears throat> be finding the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 1, near the back of your Bible. Revelation uh, should be the last book in your Bible. It is in mine. And hang a left and come back just a little bit less than a eighth of an inch, and you should find uh, the book of Hebrews. By the way, I forgot to mention, David and Nicole have prayer cards that you can pick up <clears throat> in either of the information centers this morning as you get ready to go home today. If you'd like to get one, put it on your refrigerator or in your place of prayer. I know they'd appreciate that very, very much. The great British pastor Charles Haddon Spurgeon came to his pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, May 21st, 1882. And he said to his congregation these words, I have nothing to do today but to preach Jesus Christ. Now, as a pastor, I think that's always the best thing a preacher can do, don't you? Especially when it's Christmas Eve. Because here's the thing about Easter and Christmas. Everybody in here already knows what the preacher is going to say before he ever says it, which makes it the easiest day of the year to preach and the hardest day of the year to preach. But may I say, as we begin this Christmas celebration at Hillcrest together, I ain't got nothing to do this morning but to preach Jesus Christ, and I hope you'll be willing to receive him today. That's exactly what the author to the letter to the Hebrews wanted to do as well. He's writing to a church. We don't, they were all scattered all over the place. Persecution was rampant against Christianity at that time. And the church was struggling. They were under the thumb of a dictator named Nero. Persecution was rampant. And frankly, many of them, and you get this sense when you read all of the letter to the Hebrews, they were wondering, is it worth it to follow Jesus? Because it sometimes can be hard to stand out in a crowd. It can be hard to glorify God in your life and to serve him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And many were wondering, is it worth the price? Is it worth the cost? And it's interesting that the first thing this anonymous writer to the Hebrews does is to remind them of who Jesus Christ was and what Jesus Christ actually did for them. And I think that's the most important thing any of us can know. Who is Jesus Christ? It's the most important thing we can know on Christmas Eve. The author seeks to answer that question that the carol writer of long ago posed in that old Christmas carol, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? And answering that question is the first thing that comes out of his mouth. Hebrews chapter 1, let's look at the first four verses. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels 
as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Brothers and sisters, that's just one of the most important statements about the person and work of Jesus Christ that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Theologians call that a statement about Christology, Christology, the study of Jesus Christ. And there are two or three really significant passages in the Bible, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 1, and these verses that we've read that are first among equals when it comes to describing in a concentrated place and in a concentrated manner who Jesus really is and what Jesus alone has done and can do for everyone who would simply recognize it and trust him and follow him by faith. Really, this statement answers the question, who is the Son of God? God has spoken, the writer says. He's spoken in a lot of ways. He's spoken through creation. He's spoken through his revelation in the word. He's spoken through the prophets of old. But in these latter days, God has opened up his mouth and spoken most conclusively through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way he's done it is very significant to us because it reveals the identity of Jesus in a way that can clearly be understood. In fact, this is a summary. What the author does is identify the person and work of Christ with seven statements that can be summarized in three big headings that can be lumped together under the three Old Testament offices of Judaism, prophet, priest, and king. And so get this about Jesus this morning. The first thing that I want you to notice is that he's the ruling king. King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 2 is a very powerful statement. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, watch this, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also, what? Say it out loud, created the world. That's a statement of the lordship of Jesus Christ, both in his identity and in terms of what he accomplished here on earth. The first thing we notice is that Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. Now, it shouldn't surprise you that Jesus would be an heir to everything that God has made because he's described in the Bible as the what? As the Son of God. In fact, he's the only Son of God. The Bible uses very specific language. He is the only begotten Son, John 3.16 says. And so as the only begotten Son of God, none of us should be surprised that Jesus stands to inherit everything that God has made. In the biblical period and even beyond the biblical period, you are... uh, Uh, probably aware that the eldest son, the oldest son, stood to inherit most everything the father left. It's a process that was called primogeniture. Everything went to the oldest son. I'm the oldest son in my family. I think we ought to bring it back. (laughs) But alas, everything's got to be equal today in the eyes of mama. Can I have an amen? That wasn't true back in the day. The oldest boy got pretty much everything. And certainly that was the case for the Lord Jesus Christ as the only begotten son. The purpose of God when he created the world, as you read the Bible, God had a plan. And his purpose was that the Son of God would be glorified in everything that God had made and that the Son of God one day 
at just the right time in God's divine timetable, at the end of time, the very Son of God would also inherit all things that have been made and be glorified in it. That was actually prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm number two is what we call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that's actually about Jesus Christ written centuries before Jesus was born. And you get a hint of that in Psalm two, verses seven and eight. Take a look. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, ask of me, and I will make the nations your what? Say it out loud your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. And you see that fulfilled in the word of God here. It's not been fulfilled actually because Jesus hasn't come again, but one day he will, and that biblical prophecy will be absolutely fulfilled as Jesus Christ becomes, in reality, heir of all things. Now, let me tell you why that's interesting. The reason that that's so interesting here is that the Son of God, one day when he comes again, is actually, watch this, he's going to inherit everything that he himself actually made. Now, I don't know if I'm going to get any inheritance or not. My mother tells me that her goal is to die with everything even. You know what I'm saying? With the books balanced. In other words, I want to cash out and then drop dead. So I don't know if I'm going to get anything or not. She's living it up right now, and she should. (laughs) But if I were to get something when my beloved folks pass away, here's the thing. I wouldn't have done a thing to have earned it. It's all their stuff, right? It's all theirs. And they would be handing what was theirs legally to me. Well, here's what's interesting. The stuff Jesus is going to inherit is all already his anyway. And you know why it's his? Because he's the one that made it. Somebody say amen. Christ is the agent of all creation. So here's the thing. God says that the world was made for Jesus. But here's the thing. The world was made by Jesus. John says that in the introduction of his gospel. All things were made through Christ, and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul says in Colossians 1, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and created for him. Have you all ever pondered how massive the universe is? Unfathomable in its depth, in its scope, in its breadth, in its length, in its dimensions. Just the galaxy that we live in, the Milky Way galaxy, is over 100,000 light years from one end to the other. That's over 600 trillion miles. Wrap your mind about that. And that's just one galaxy. Scientists estimate that there are over 100,000 million galaxies in the universe And every galaxy contains over 100,000 million stars. That's a lot of zeros behind that one. Incalculable. And here's the thing. That tiny baby that we talk about being born in Bethlehem was behind every bit of that. And the writer of Hebrews says here in verse 3 that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only did those tiny fingers create the world and the universe, but the Lord Jesus Christ upholds it by his word. 
And in other words, not only is the Son of God creator, he sustains everything. Paul says that in Colossians 1, in him all things hold together. May I make a statement this morning? If Jesus Christ ever took a nap, the world and the universe as we know it would instantly unravel and begin to fly apart. He holds it together by the word of his power. And that's so very important because what that does is it reveals part of the identity of Jesus. He is Lord. He's the ruling king. It reveals the kingship, the lordship, the sovereignty of the Son of God. Let me just say this morning, when Jesus was born 2,000 years ago plus in Bethlehem, he didn't come into the world looking much like a king. His family didn't look like a kingly family. He was born in a cattle trough, for crying out loud. Raised a carpenter's son. As an adult, the Bible says he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. He was executed like a common criminal, buried in a borrowed tomb. But now we're told Jesus is alive. And he's ascended into heaven, and he's sitting on a regal throne, not an earthly throne today, though one day that is coming. And when he comes, he's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth with him. But today he's seated on the heavenly throne at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. And all of this is given to you and to me, not only to teach us something about the identity of the Son of God, but also to encourage us because Christmas can be a difficult time for many people to live. The world is hard. The world can grind you down. That was happening to these Hebrew believers They were wondering, is it worth it to follow Jesus Christ? And there's some people in the room this morning that are probably in a very dark place right now. I was in the hospital last night until really late ministering with a family who was in the middle of an incredible crisis. So times might be dark. And this is an important reminder that's meant to encourage us in our times of difficulty because today we look through eyes of faith, but mark it down, there's a day coming and Jesus is gonna come again and when he comes again, he's gonna turn the whole world right side up again and finally and forever, he'll put all enemies under his feet and we'll never have to worry about a dark time ever again. So keep your eyes focused, brothers and sisters, because that's who Jesus is. He's on a throne even as we speak because he is the ruling king of kings and Lord of lords. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing about the identity of the Son of God is that he's the final prophet. Not only is he king, he's a prophet, and he's not just any prophet. He's the final prophet. He's the last in the line of the biblical prophets. Y'all remember the Old Testament prophets, don't you? Well, they had a very important role. Their role was basically to set up the coming of Jesus Christ, to set up the coming of the Messiah of Israel. And they did that. Many of them had to pay dearly for it with their lives. But they were obedient to the Lord, and they opened up their mouth, and they heralded forth a message of hope in the midst of darkness, a message of of hope in the midst of discouragement to a wayward, obstinate people called Israel, that Jesus was coming. And... Likewise, the Son of God functions in kind of a prophetic role today because what Jesus does is to reveal the plan and the purpose of God to a lost and dying world in a full and complete sense. And that's reflected here in the opening words of Hebrews, verse number three. He's the radiance, Jesus is, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. See, that's the prophetic role of Jesus. He's the only one that can fully and completely reveal to you and me who God is and what God is like. 
There's a little bit we can learn about God by looking around us in creation. We can learn about the power of God and the creativity of God. But it took Jesus to reveal things to us that are much deeper about God. The love of God, the grace of God, the heart of God. We can only know those things through the one who came as God in the likeness of human flesh and as the final prophet, Jesus gives us the final word that we need to know about God. So I want you to mark this down. Apart from Jesus, you and I are still in the dark when it comes to knowing God. But when he was born with his birth, Jesus becomes this final prophet in the sense that he perfectly, completely reveals the Father and all of his glory. Again, that's unpacked for us by John in his opening words of the Gospel of John. Look at John 1 and verse 14. And the Word, that's a descriptive term to describe Christ, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, as of that writing, Jesus had ascended, gone back to the Father, now seated on a throne. That God who is at the Father's side, the Son of God, he and he alone has made him known. And this is why Paul is going to say about Christ to the Colossians in Colossians 1.15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's why the writer of Hebrews here calls him the exact imprint of God's nature. That word imprint in the Greek New Testament is literally, it's a transliterated word. It's the Greek word character, character. We get our English word character from it. And the idea, you remember the old-fashioned typewriters? The ones you had to kind of stomp on to get them to, you know, you don't have to do that, just lightly touch. Now, but I was trained in typing in high, when I was in high school, which means obviously based on the kind of typewriters I was trained on, I was raised in the dark ages because we had the old Olivetti's that you had to really grind down on. And they had the metal keys that, that were cast in the metal die and they would strike the paper. And left on the paper was what? the exact imprint of the character that was struck, right? And now you know what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about, what Paul was talking about as he said he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact character of God's nature. So that's who he was. He was the fleshly image of God, Jesus was, the exact imprint of his nature, the divine character, if you will. And as such, what does he do? He teaches us who God is. And as reflecting the character of God, he helps us to know the heart of God. And that's what makes him the perfect and the final prophet because with the coming of Jesus, let me say this, nothing more needs to be said He's the final, last word about God. And this is why Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has what? Seen the Father. That's right. Because of who he is. God in flesh. Well, is everybody with me so far? Say amen. Amen. Jesus Christ is the ruling king, creator, and sustainer of all. 
Jesus Christ is the final prophet, the exact imprint of the divine character who finally and fully reveals God to a lost humanity. And then finally, the writer to the Hebrews tells us that the Son of God serves a priestly role as well. He is the perfect priest. And that priestly function is an important function of Jesus because in his role as priest, you know why a priest is important? A priest represents uh, access. A priest, by definition, is a bridge builder, somebody that stands in the gap, right? And the beautiful thing about Christianity is you don't need another human being to get to God. Because you've got a great high priest who's seated at the right hand of God, and he's the only one that stands between you and God. It's Jesus that died to give you divine access as a complete priest, a perfect priest with an instant audience to God. This is the symbolism of what happened when Jesus was crucified. One of the things when Jesus died that happened is that there was this veil in the temple, this giant curtain that was as thick as a man's hand in width, 50 feet high and that thick. And the Bible says that when Jesus took his last breath, what happened to that temple and the curtain? It was ripped from top to bottom. And the veil that separated the common man from the presence of God inside the temple's sanctum sanctorum, the holy of holies, was now totally exposed, symbolizing, of course, that nothing else was needed, that the price had been paid, and now we have total and complete access to God through a great high priest who died in our place, whose name is Jesus Christ. That's verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, of course, you all should know that in the Old Testament, it was the priest that made the sacrifice, right? So you would come as a worshiper, as an, an Old Testament Jew, and you'd come bringing a, a, a calf or a bull or a lamb or a pigeon or some kind of a live sacrifice so that blood atonement can be made. But the priest would be the one to take that sacrifice, and he would be the one to shed the blood and then sprinkle the blood on you and on the altar and all that stuff. And the sacrifice of Jesus was so radically different. See, those animal sacrifices couldn't do anything to completely alleviate the sin problem of your life. They could cover sin, but just for a period of time. That's why you had to keep dragging the animals to the temple, one after another, week after week, constantly. But then Jesus died. And Jesus' sacrifice was different because the Bible says he is the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the sacrifice of Jesus was complete. It was total. It can purge the sinful condition from the believer who responds to the sacrifice of Christ by faith. And so Jesus was the sacrifice. That's the thing about the priesthood of Jesus. The priest in the Old Testament wasn't the sacrifice. The priest offered the sacrifice. But Jesus, our high priest, offered himself. He was the offering. He was both priest and offering his life given in exchange for ours. And you need never forget that because we get caught up in the little baby and the beautiful baby. Can I make a statement this morning? That baby was born to die on a cross in your place. That was the whole purpose for his coming. To take your place, to die a death that you deserved 
but to make atonement which you couldn't provide for yourself because your life's full of sin. But he didn't have any sin. So he came for the express purpose of dying for the sins of every person, past, present, and future, even people that hadn't been born yet. And when he died as the perfect sacrifice, he took all of that sin onto his bodies. Never forget that, man. The cradle was but a door that would lead to Calvary. The life of Jesus in Galilee was just preparation for his death at Golgotha. And then once he did that, Hebrews says something very important. Once he did that, his work, his sacrifice being complete, what did Jesus do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know the thing about Old Testament priests? They never sat down, ever, because the work never stopped. People were dragging one animal after another after another. They didn't have time to sit down because sacrifice had to continually be made, continually. So the priests never sat down. In fact, can I make a statement this morning as you're sitting down? No worshiper ever sat down in the temple. There were no chairs in the temple. In fact, there were no chairs in organized Christianity until about 1,400, 1,500 years after the death of Christ. You look at old paintings of cathedrals back in the Middle Ages. Ain't no chairs in them. People would come and they would stand to worship God. It would have been considered too casual to sit down, not to lay a guilt trip on anybody. You didn't sit down in the presence of God. Nobody sat down in the presence of God, particularly the priest. And yet the first thing Jesus does after he dies and ascends to heaven is sit down. You know why? Because there was no more sacrifice to be made. We only need one sacrifice, and it was his. And once that sacrifice is done, and that's the whole purpose of Jesus shouting from the cross when it was all said and done, it is what? Finished. The work is accomplished. The work has been completed. And so Jesus gets to heaven and takes his place seated on a throne because no more blood sacrifice is needed. But make no mistake, can I make a a statement again this morning? Jesus didn't go to heaven in order to take a long nap. His throne is not a lazy boy. It's a throne. Here's the thing. Jesus continues to work. Sacrifice is not necessary, but he's continuing to work. It's just a different sort of work. Verse 34 of Romans chapter 8. Watch this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed what? Do you see that? He's just doing a different kind of work seated on that throne. He's pleading your case. Did you know Jesus Christ is praying for you even as I'm speaking these words? He's mentioning your name to the Father. He loves you that much. I don't know how he's able to do it. Billions of people around the world. But those who know him, he's interceding. He's pleading our case. He's taking our prayers, imperfect that they are, shaping them up, molding them, presenting them perfectly to the Father. He's defending us because we've been delivered of our sin, and he's interceding for us. The Savior who went to the cross for me 
taking my place in death for the forgiveness of my sin is now a risen Savior who at the right hand of God is taking my case and my name with all the imperfection of my life because I'm one of his children by faith. He's taking every imperfection of my life and placing it in the presence of God the Father in a perfect kind of way so that what is accomplished in my life is God's very best. And that's very significant work that will continue until one day we are face to face with him. I think the author of Hebrews starts this way in order to communicate to these struggling Jewish believers a reminder of who Jesus is so that in their dark times, as the persecution of Nero is hot, they won't lose their way. They won't lose their joy. They won't lose their hope. They won't lose their focus. It's a reminder. You got a Savior like that, you can trust him no matter what. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your hope. He's worthy of your affection. He's worthy of your worship, even when times are dark and you feel like you've lost your way. Who is the Son of God? He's the ruling king, creator of the universe and sustainer of all that is. He is the final prophet, the last word about God, the exact character of the glory of God. And he's the perfect priest who sacrificed his own life to cleanse us from all sin and give us immediate and everlasting access to God until one day we stand together in the glory of the presence of the risen King and we are with the Lord forever. The question today is not only who is the Son of God, but a larger question is do you know the Son of God? I want you to bow your heads with me this morning, would you, for just a moment.